Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Test, test, okay. test, test, You're test. barely over the line. I have a very low voice. I know. So you need to either really project or, or get right up in there. Okay. I'm trying. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm always saying the name. I don't like saying the name because it's my name, so I haven't said the name for weeks. But I'm saying the name because we've started doing these intros together, and last week, uh, mid-intro, someone was listening to the show, and I got a text saying, I think you made a mistake. There's a conversation between you and Caitlin on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that really happened. That's hilarious. Yeah. So that person doesn't listen regularly. Okay, That's okay, I guess not. That's okay. We don't expect that. But anyway, I am explaining that we are going to get to a chef, two chef interviews soon. Uh, but first of all, can we just briefly say why we do these intros? Yeah, go for it. Why do we do them? I do them because I, in addition to interviewing chefs on this show and having a connection with, hopefully, with each of them individually each week, I want to have a connection with the listeners to the show. I think this is something that writers like to have with people who read them. And I think it's something that good podcasts have. I, I don't flatter myself enough to think you and I should sit here and talk for an hour. But I do think a few minutes at the beginning is hopefully something that helps listeners feel more of a connection with me because I'm the one who's here every week. You're here every week, too. <laughs> we could probably kill an hour, though. We could kill an hour, but I think we'd kill the show. True that. <laughs> True that. So that's why we do this. And um, today, we, this is a Sunday that we're recording this intro, and we, I think, reconnected with why we never go to brunch. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. It was. It started out great. It started. It was a good idea. We, we started wanted, out strong. We wanted to have a holiday get together with some friends of ours. We we live just north of New York City in in Hastings on Hudson. We drove down to the West Village to meet them at Barbudo. We were half an hour early, and we popped into Tortilla Flats, which is a little Mexican cantina e type place that I've been. I haven't been there in years, but it's been there long enough that I went there in college. And I had a frozen margarita. Which you never order. Which I never order. It just seemed like the right... I just wanted it. I just wanted it. And then (laughs) we had chips and salsa. You had enough restraint not to start drinking there. (laughs) Because I knew what was coming. Right. Then we went to Barbudo. And oh my God, Barbudo, for people who don't know, is is the legendary chef, Jonathan Waxman's restaurant in the West Village. And we were, how do we say it? We were an industry table. Everyone at the table was in the industry. And we ordered, you can't stop at that restaurant. Well, you probably should stop, but you can't stop because it's so good. Well, you want, there's all this alcohol you want there. You want a margarita or a Negroni and you want champagne or Prosecco and then you want wine. And you want potatoes. And you got to have all the things that you know you love. Right. So you have to have pasta. You have to have the kale salad. You Actually, we did not have the chicken today. That might be a first. We did not have Jonathan Waxman's chicken. That's true. We opted for the steak. Which was so good. We had the Parmesan potatoes, which are the best rendition of those potatoes I've ever had. The sort of fried, crispy fingerlings smashed with parm. Perfection. And we should actually confess that one dinner, we ordered three. We ordered <laughs> one potato plate per person one time with the, with Jimmy Bradley. Because that's the, how much we love them. Yes. Well, it was my birthday, so I think that was okay. But... um Anyway, so we were there forever. <laughs> we rolled out. Somehow we got home. And I, I, conf- I think I slept in the car. I you honestly, slept in the car. <laughs> you kept saying, are you sleeping? And yeah. I was like, absolutely not. You, but slept, I, I you absolutely slept in the was. car. And I, we got home and I, went to, I turned on last night's Saturday Night Live on DVR. And I, I didn't even get through the monologue. <laughs> and I woke up three hours later. And that was that. That's why we don't go to brunch. Because the day ends at 4.30. Yeah. That's the problem with brunch. Yeah. Although the brunch itself was fantastic. But the cost of the brunch <laughs> in time of our lives. <laughs> and we're going to, we skipped dinner. Yes. Probably won't eat breakfast. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still very full. Uh, actually, okay. I let's, hate myself a little bit. I, me too. Let's move on. Anyway. It All was right. great. So... <laughs> We have two interviews, and my overzealousness with this show and my addiction now to interviewing chefs and friends of mine, um, I've, I overshot. We're, we're the maximum episodes per season here is 14, and along with the Richard Blaze episode that's going to end the season next week, uh, I had 15 episodes, and I have... Two interviews that I just needed to do some editing on. I hadn't been able to do it. And we're running those as a twofer this week, our first twofer. Uh, The first interview, which we'll get to in a second, is with Philip Tessier, who has a chef who for years was in the Thomas Keller organization and went into battle for the U.S. at the Boku's Door Culinary Competition in 2015 and 
won a silver medal. It was the first medal the U.S. had ever managed to accomplish there. Um, and then he was a big part of coaching the team that went in 2017, which was led by a gentleman named Matt Peters, and they came back with a gold medal. So that was quite an achievement. And he's written a book about it called Chasing Bocuse, which is now out, and it's gorgeous. The other interview we're doing is with Chef Michael White, who I think most people listening to this probably know. They for sure know his restaurants. He, in New York, has Morea, I Fiori. He has Vaucluse, which is his French restaurant, Osteria Morini, which is a uh, sort of a uh, northern Italian uh, restaurant in the village. He has Ristorante, Ristorante Marini on the Upper East Side. He has been at the Italian thing his entire career, from his earliest jobs uh, at Spiaggia in Chicago, through eight years, most of which he spent in Italy as a young chef training uh, which is a huge amount of time in a young person's life. And he's one of the best practitioners of Italian cuisine in the United States, maybe in the world, probably in the world. He does have restaurants in Hong Kong and other places around the world. And he's also, I should say, a very good friend of mine and of ours. And I co-authored his book, Classico e Moderno. I need to say that up front. Uh, but, you know, for the whole season, I've been wanting to sit down with Michael and talk to him. So I'm thrilled that we have that interview to share. But before that, our first interview of this twofer is, again, with Phil Tessier. And Phil is, I call him the man with the plan. Phil, <laughs> he was. The the United States had been competing in the Boku's Door competition. And for those of you who don't know, and I could spend... Talk about spending an hour on something, Caitlin. I could spend an hour trying to explain how, how the Boku's door works. It's such a complicated... Ultimately, it actually isn't that complicated. Once you have it explained to you, it's very logical and it makes sense. But in terms of how the competition plays out over two days, in terms of how the scoring works, and as far as who the judges are, as far as how all that happens, it's just time-consuming to explain it. But suffice it to say, it is an international culinary competition it's certainly i would say the most prestigious one in the world it it is also uh, in many ways an antiquated one it it involves platters and very ornate presentations um it's it's always been set in lyon it was created by and is named for the great paul bocuse who's one of the most important chefs of the 20th century. I, I don't have time to go into the reasons why, but if you are listening to this show and you don't know who Paul Bocuse is, it's worth at least a visit to Wikipedia. He's a, a major figure and a, a major reason why chefs enjoy the place in society and have the types of careers available to them that they do today. I don't think that's an overstatement, but wow. I can't get in. It's true. Okay. But it's it's just, we don't have time for that because we got to get to our guests. But Phil, uh, so the U.S. had been competing. The, the competition takes place every other year. And the U.S. is certainly one of the few non-European countries that had been making a go at this thing since its inception in 1987. And we had never managed to do what they call making the podium 
which means getting a medal, winning a bronze, silver, or gold medal, as you would in the Olympics. The best we'd ever done was sixth place, which we had done twice. And in 2008, with an eye toward the 09 competition, Daniel Belud and Thomas Keller and Jerome Bocuse, who's Paul Bocuse's son, Jerome is based in Orlando. He, he runs the Chefs de France restaurant that his father founded with some other great French chefs decades ago. And I should say, Jerome owns those restaurants now. And um, Phil went in there, I think at a time when people had kind of given up on the United States, ever coming back with a medal. It was our fourth at bat under the keller Boulud bocuse leadership. And boom, the guy wins the silver medal and almost got the gold. I mean, he missed the gold by less than one point per judge. So that is excruciatingly close. And then he helped uh, coach Matt Peters, who went back for the U.S. in 2017, and Matt won the gold. And all of this is told in Phil's book. It's a book that came out this fall. It actually came out, I think, the day or the day after we interviewed. And uh, it's called Chasing Bocuse. It's an absolutely beautiful book. It tells the story of the U.S. effort focusing on the last two metal-producing attempts. Uh, I have to say, I did, I don't need to get into exactly how, but I did play a part in the evolution of the book. Uh, I actually wrote a foreword to the book, uh, and I was happy to do all of that, and Phil's nice enough to mention it in the interview. Uh, but really, I think it's, as as was the silver medal. I think it is his accomplishment, obviously. And I wanted to have him on the show. I wanted to have him on to tell his story, to tell a little bit about how we went about doing this. Uh, what am I forgetting, Caitlin? You were actually there. I didn't even mention this. <laughs> I I was not there in 15 or 17. In 09, I wrote a book. Thank you. Um, this actually probably even falls under full disclosure. But I wrote a book called Knives at Dawn. It was the story of the first team that was led by Timothy Hollingsworth, who now has the great restaurant, Otium, in, in Los Angeles, which I highly recommend. It's fantastic. And uh, Tim was at the time a sous chef at the French Laundry, and I approached the team about, uh, or the leadership, about doing a book about the first team to go under the Keller, Boulud, Bocuse leadership. And I was sort of what I call embedded with the team. So I got a front row seat to the stresses, the um, exhaustion. To, you're shaking first, your head. I'm shaking my head because I think it was the first time I've actually seen you fatigued. That was hard. That yeah. was going over You're there, right, because research right? trips, I usually, you come, I, I, yeah. I derive energy from being busy and talking to people. Yeah, that one was tough. It was stressful because the team was under an enormous amount of stress. And I, it was my own book. It wasn't a collaboration. But... Um, you know, when you get that close to people, I do think if you're at all um, empathic, which I believe is what I do for a living, um, you 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 tap into what's going on with them, and it was enormously stressful to be there. It was exhausting, and you know, everyone involved is in the food business. So when you're over there, the, the year I went, the team was there for two weeks. You're not just there doing a couple of rehearsal practice, you know, doing a few dry runs and competing. It's like there's dinners every night. These are cooks. 
I mean, you're you're out a lot. Um, I don't, do you remember the phone call I made? It just popped into my head. I was over there for two weeks. I never found a moment to get gifts. Oh, I do remember this. For you and the kids. Right. I was down to my last night. I ended up making a run out to Daniel Balud's parents' home. They were going to store some of the equipment and stuff for the next team. And Danielle invited me to come along. And of course, I would never say no to that. But that was the day. I had a day between the competition and my flight home. And I was going to go. I was going to go for a run. <laughs> I was going to not eat. <laughs> and I was going to um, get gifts for you guys. Because I'd been away for the longest I'd ever been away. It was like 15 days. And I got back. This is, event is in January. I get back to the city. It's dark. And Leon is not New York. Every store was closed. I was walking through the streets of darkened Lyon in the winter, and I felt so bad. And do you remember this? And I called you, and I said, Caitlin, and you said, yeah, do you remember this? And I burst into tears from exhaustion. I know. Now that you're reminding me, this is making me sad. You were really tired. That's how tired I was. You were really, it, yeah. That's how, it was just complete exhaustion. And I wasn't on the team. I was just following these guys around with like my tape recorder being, you know, a nuisance basically. But um, that was the level of fatigue. It was amazing. So think about what it's like for them. For Phil. Yeah, and for Phil. Right. And to come through against, in the midst of all that. It was amazing. I have to say, Philip actually lives in Napa and was in New York right on the heels of the awful, tragic fires that had broken out there. And we talk about that at the beginning of the interview. And I did just want to mention that because we talk about it as if it was a very fresh event, because at the time, it was. And with that, here you go, my interview with Philip Tessier, author of Chasing Bocuse and Silver Medalist at the Bocuse Door. I hope you enjoy it. Bill, welcome to New York. Thanks. Great to be you. Um, you know, before we talk about your career and the Boku's door and this book, I have—I think you're the first person that I have seen um, since the fires mm -hmm. um, in Northern California. Why, why don't you tell guests, you live where? I live in Gordon Valley, which is like just over the hill from Napa, like right on the edge of Napa County. So pretty much right in the thick of it. And I mean, we could probably spend the whole half hour, as anyone mm -hmm. could who's been through something that harrowing. Um, but how close did how close did the fires get to you? And what's what's your immediate area like in the aftermath? Yeah, so where we live, it's about a thousand feet from the eastern border of the Atlas Peak Fire. So wow. it was really, uh, I think Tuesday night last week, really thought everything was 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 gone. <laughs> But um, you know, you thought it was imminent that it was going to take your house. Yeah, I mean, you're you're at, you're evacuated. You're at a distance, looking at you know what the the maps are showing, and yeah. um, you know there was some some local heroes, um, our vineyard manager Angel, and uh, some of the other local uh, neighbors that stayed on and basically formed a citizen fire brigade with some of the local firefighters and kept that that edge fought back. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it just you know life is so unexpected in these kinds of circumstances, and Amazing. really makes you. Uh, makes you makes you take uh, inventory I yeah. guess of of what's important. Did you know until you came back whether or not your house had survived? 
So I remember vividly Wednesday morning getting a, a photo text from from Angel, who was uh, uh-huh. who was there and seeing everything still uh, still intact. I mean, and the immediate risk at that point, at least for the moment, barring some kind of wind situation or something, yeah. had passed. Yeah, I mean, the winds were really everything, right? Yeah. Like they right. they blew through in such an unprecedented way on yeah. on that Sunday night, and then really the first thirty six hours of the fire was just getting people out of harm's way. Yeah, um, and then you know as things died down, it became uh, shifting towards, you know, like controlling the fire versus, you know, just getting people out of harm's way. Right. So it's really, um, the, the amount of support that came in over the week was, was really incredible. Yeah. And, um, you know, now it's really just a shift from, you know, the fire happening to bringing people back into the Valley. Right. Uh, you know, I drove into the Valley for the first time a couple, a couple of days ago and, um, you know, you wouldn't know if you, didn't know a fire just happened in your immediate area. Yeah. It's mostly up in the Hills, yeah. you know, and kind of on the borders of, of Napa, but yeah. the vineyards really saved quite a bit of, of, right. of the Valley and, uh, we're kind of a natural border for so the So people, fire. people should get there. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing people can do is be there, support the businesses, support, yeah. you know, everyone who's there. I mean, a lot of the local businesses have taken a hit, but they're even despite that, yeah. you know, doing events and things and sure. out of their own funds to, to help the local community. So, right. you know, we really need that, that national support. Great. Well, uh, we won't talk about that anymore, but thanks yeah, for sharing all absolutely. that. It's, um, it's, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad your house is okay. Obviously a lot of people were as lucky. Um, and, uh, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about you and let's talk about the Boku's door. Um, I think what would be appropriate is to talk about it maybe a little bit in the context of your culinary life and career. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't you, first of all, Tell us how you first got interested in cooking, uh, and and when you decided you were going to pursue that professionally. Right. Yeah, I would say I had kind of an unnatural interest in food at a young age. <laughs> um, you know, my my mom used to do this thing where she'd go to the library and get you know a cookbook, and we could you know we could choose whatever book we wanted and whatever recipe, and we uh-huh. would try to make it together. And you know, my brother was doing like pizza bagels and you know stuff like this, and I was like, I want to make pierogies and like strawberry trifle, and you know, so I was always trying to find something diverse and complicated. Were um, the books your main source of um, inspiration for that kind of thing? Like you would see something in the book that looked intriguing. Yeah, I would say, you know, the the main driving force for me was um, kind of the cooking shows my mom would watch on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Uh, Jacques Pepin specifically, you know, watching him, my first my first book that I owned as a cookbook was La Technique. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, memorable moment a few months ago and got him to sign it and, you know, uh, spent some time with him. But yeah, it was, um, you know, really kind of a combination of that and just an interest in the kitchen. And then, you know, my mom would work late at night sometimes. So it kind of came out of necessity where I yeah. would just, you know, she'd leave a note. This is what we can do for dinner. And I, right. would, I would, I would make it, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, that's so funny. I had a single working mom when mm-hmm. uh, growing up and I, that's how I first cooked. Yeah. Uh, was, yeah my dad worked uh, yeah. a night shift and yeah. so he would sleep during the day. Yeah. And so it was like, if we wanted to eat before seven, that's what we had to do. Right. So, uh, and then I, you know, I just realized I enjoyed doing it yeah. and, um, was fortunate enough to kind of, uh, I went to a job fair interested in a restaurant, landed at the Williamsburg Inn in Williamsburg, Virginia, where I grew up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was really fortunate to kind of fall into a restaurant where, you know, chefs had gone to culinary school and were, you know, driven and motivated in that career. And, you know, the chef, um, who was the chef at the time had cooked for the Royal family of Norway and was from Germany. So had a classic background and, um, you know, I was fortunate not to find myself in, you know, kind of a more of a fast food chain sure. restaurant, especially yeah. in, you know, a smaller town like that. Right. You know, you just mentioned Jacques Pepin and La mm-hmm. Technique. Uh, can you mind if I ask how old you are? Yeah, I'm 38. 38. So when you grew up, was it really still French dominant in terms of the way you thought about, um, 
culinary tradition? In other words, were mm-hmm. you thinking at all Spain, Scandinavia? Were those things making an impact, or was France really still sort of uh, dominant in your in your universe? Yeah, I mean, when I arrived at culinary school, is you know, 1997. Yeah. So you know, it was really, um, you know, France was still the dominant leading country when it came to cuisine and technique. Uh, however, you know, it was kind of, I would say right in the, in the thick of the shift towards American chefs, you know, yeah. starting to look at, you know, Charlie Palmer and Charlie Trotter and, you know, heard about this guy, Thomas Keller, you mm-hmm. know, eventually. And, yeah. uh, you know, so those were kind of the, the, the new and exciting names that were coming out. David Burke at the time, Alice yeah. Waters. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you get out of the CIA and mm-hmm. where do you, where do you find yourself? So I actually spent an extra year at the CIA as a as a student teacher. So okay. they had a the Escoffier room at the time, which is now fittingly named the the Bocuse room. Right. Um, and uh, and for people who don't know, that is a dining room that is open to the public. It's a mm-hmm. restaurant. Yeah, it's open one of their to the public. It's one of the student run restaurants there. Right. Yeah. And um, that was an amazing experience. You know, I was I was super young. I was like nineteen at the time, and yeah. you know, a student teacher. And you know, the way that school is set up, you have a different class every every seven days. So you're running a restaurant that's open to the public with a new class of anywhere from fifteen to eighteen students. So you know, in the course of the year I spent there was like over three hundred and fifty students that it's came amazing. through. Amazing. So I think that really kind of positioned me as more of like kind of having a teaching frame of mind. Yes. Um, but then after that, I went to France for about six months and uh, probably one of the best times of my life. Just, you know, worked for free. Yeah. Um, didn't uh, didn't have any other cares other than working. I actually, actually told them like, can I work six days because I don't have any money to spend on my days right. off. Uh, but yeah, I spent about three months in Chambéry, which is like an hour east of Lyon in okay. the hills of the Alps. And yeah. then uh, about three months at uh, Moulin de Mougin, which was Roger nice. Verger's. That's great. Uh, you know, restaurant right there and uh, right outside of Cannes in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it, back in the States, you how yeah. did you find your way ultimately to the the Keller organization? So I came back to to, to New York. My... Uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, yeah. she was Rachel. She was up at CIA doing the the bachelor's program. So, um, wanted to be close to her. Figured I'll move to New York City, even though I'm kind of more of an outdoorsy kind of guy. Uh, yeah, supposed to be there for a year. Turned into seven years. Um, and I spent a little over three years at Laverna Dunn. Yep. Um, and that was an amazing, really formative experience for me. Um, but you know, I became a sous chef there, thought I knew a lot about cooking and then I went to per se when we opened, uh, in 2004 and, uh, you know, talk about an eye opening experience. When I walked into, you know, the per se, you know, French laundry, Thomas Keller organization, it was just, you know, every chef from the top down is challenged, you know, from the commies in the back and not only challenged from, you know, a performance level, what can you do in the kitchen, but, you know, from a kind of thought perspective, coming up with things for VIPs and coming up with new ideas and every, when you have that level of creativity at every level. Yes. It's really incredible what you can achieve together. Um, I mean, I, I, I won't be specific and mm-hmm. name names, but I, you know, when you, you know, you go from Laverna Dan, which it's a three-star Michelin restaurant mm-hmm. now. Um, and, uh, but I know a lot of people who've worked at Per Se, especially that I think the further back you go, the more true this is. Mm-hmm. Most people who were there at the, in the early years, especially they felt like that was it. Like that, there was nothing Harder. There was nothing better. There was nothing. Maybe you. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like you were sort of saying that, but yeah. but there seemed to really be this feeling like that was sort of the pinnacle, the special forces. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, you know, when we went there, you know, Thomas Keller coming back to New York was a huge story. Yep. Um, you know, there was an immense pressure on us, and also, uh, you know, a, a desire to succeed on our own to help 
help him succeed, you yeah. know, be a part of that story. And, um, it was really, I think a, a transformative time in New York city. You know, I think a lot of the chefs had kind of, you know, were kind of established and relaxed. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we, when per se came in, everybody was like, well, we got to up our game, you know, because the, that's the, how it changing. felt from the vantage point of the fourth floor of the time Warner center. It did, you yeah. know, and, and just even being at the Bernadette before we left, like, yeah. that, you know, that was the story. And then, you know, again, the Michelin guide following, you know, a few years later, like between, I think those two key events, I think there was a real transformative time in, in mm -hmm. the city. So, you know, uh, to fast forward a little bit, because I do want to spend most of our time talking mm -hmm. about the Boku's Door experience you had. It's it's so unique. Um, and your experience, I mean, Americans had been making a run at this thing since the first ever uh, competition in 87, mm -hmm. which means every other year since 87. Um, you know, and you were the first person who cracked the code and got a, a medal. Uh, and um, I will be honest, having written a book about it, I... Uh, you know, I jokingly said to Thomas Keller when you guys came back, I said something like, um, you know, I had tweeted something like, um, gay marriage legalized, first African-American president, an American wins a medal at the Boku's door, mm -hmm. three things I thought would take much longer to happen. Right, right. I remember that. Yeah, I do <laughs> and, remember that. And that was true. I yeah. just, having been over there, having been in the thick of it when I was writing that book, having been to some of the sort of exclusive you know, gatherings and seeing how, with the exception of the Americans, because Paul Bocuse is such a fan of the United States, mm -hmm. uh, and I, he made, you know, he made them welcome at awards lunches and things like that. Sure. Um, that, that was, it felt like a real European stronghold. You know, you didn't hear English spoken in those rooms. Mm -hmm. um, you did not see, you know, you saw like three Americans, you saw Thomas Keller and the team, you know, right, right. that was it. That mm -hmm. was it. There were no other English, no one else. That was it. And and uh, and I'm not saying that there was a, a bias necessarily, but it just reinforced my feeling that you almost had to be, I always said the ideal Boku's door candidate, which is what they call the competitors mm -hmm. for the U.S., was someone who would, was born and raised in France and moved to the United States and became a naturalized citizen, right? right. Like that to right. me um, was, and I wasn't joking. I, I really meant that. Well, you know, and one of the, two people who had placed six in the past was Hartmann Hanke, who was German born, mm -hmm. who, who actually was a European, right? right. Uh, who competed for the U S. Um, but all of this aside, I mean, it was such an amazing achievement. You go through it in great detail in the book, but how did the book whose door, do you remember when you first even heard about it or mm -hmm. when you became aware of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, and it's, one of the great things about the book is like how we are just able to go into detail about that, that whole story and what drew me into it. But, sure. um, you know, I, I think here in the U S like it's, it, it's, a something you hear about on, on, in, in different levels, yep. but you know, for the, for listeners, I mean, this is a international competition, 24 countries coming together, you know, competing in front of 2,500 screaming fans. It's a, it's a really big deal, yeah. you know, and you don't, a lot of people don't realize that until, you know, they're there, yes. you know, and it's kind of like explaining like, oh, there's this big concert in this Madison Square Garden place. And it's really amazing if you're there. And, but it's not until you walk in those doors and yeah. you're three seats back no. and you're just feeling it, you know, that that's the experience you get there. And, you know, for me, like I, you know, first had a sous chef when I was at the chef de cuisine at Bouchon in Yonville and he's like, Hey, you should really watch this, you know, competition. Like, there's this documentary. And so I went and, you know, just watched these documentaries and it was just like, um, you know, you get goosebumps you yeah. know, just watching these guys train and everything they go through and, you know, just that whole experience. And then, you know, really be 
came came right to our doorstep when Chef Keller, you know, and Daniel Ballou, Jerome Bocuse formed the, you know, Boku Store USA yeah. back in 2008. Um, you know, then Tim Hollingsworth is, you know, right yeah. down the street training and actually one of my... So you were at the French Laundry at that time? I was at Bouchon still. Oh, Bouchon. Um, you know, right. one of my guys was looking to be his commis at, yeah. at first. So, you know, it was kind of still... You know, it was right there, but it was still a little bit distant, and that was a really fast, you know, training year. So that was something that was going on mm-hmm. uh, down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you were probably in the kitchen once or twice when Tim and I would come in and interview. Uh, we used to come in and interview over dinner at Bouchon. Yeah, yeah I was um, there. Uh, and um, uh, so it was, it was, it was within arm's reach, but that was almost it may as well been may as well been in another state or something like that. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the challenging thing for me is, you know, I'd watch these documentaries, right? Yeah. And you look at the commitment yeah. that these guys have to put into this. And, you know, yeah. like I'm like, I had two, maybe three kids at the time. I have three kids now. And, um, you know, I'm the chef of this restaurant. Yeah. And I'm like, how could I possibly, yeah. you know, do that? And uh, it wasn't really until, you know, a few years down the road um, when I was at the French Laundry, um, even more busy yeah. <laughs> being up there. But, you know, watching Richard Rosendale compete and he trained for a few days and, uh, you know, at, at Ad Hoc and in the training house that we had next to the French Laundry. And, you know, that was a point where I was like really intrigued by the whole thing. And then watching the level of support that, um, you know, Boku Store USA, which had then, you know, become mentor in 2014, you know, the ability for a candidate to actually be supported by them as as almost your job, you know, during that year was really the first time I said, you know, like, man, if I have that level of support, I think I could actually do this. And uh, that was that was kind of when the wheels started turning yeah. uh, to in that direction. Yeah. But then you had a moment, did you not, uh, mm-hmm. when you were actually went over and watched the competition? Yeah, that was the really the push over the cliff. Um and you know, a lot of people think um oh, you people the chefs competing in this, they're doing it for the grandeur and the glory and all yeah. of this and you know, the real moment for me that made me want to decide I hadn't even been to the competition yet. That was the following day, but the uh we had a dinner, so I was there to do a a, a dinner, a course for a dinner at, at the Grand Chef's dinner. So Ducasse you were in Lyon for this, yeah. And okay. you know Devin Nell, who's the chef de cuisine for TKRG, myself, Eli from Per Se, like we went over to do a course for this big chef's dinner. And so yeah. we had a time in between to kind of be alongside the team. And so we went to a dinner one night that was kind of the team send off dinner. It's kind of a tradition. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I found myself in this bistro and sitting at this table and yeah. I, I'm just kind of one of those pinch yourself moments where like Grant Atkins is across the table. There's Jerome and Danielle yes. and, you know, Chef Keller and yeah. Dave Barron and Gabrielle Croy there. Yes. And like the list goes on, you know, who's who of, of American chefs and, you know, just kind of, struck me at that moment, like, you know, here I am in this room surrounded by all these great chefs. Like, why would I not want to be a part of this organization and, and be that guy, you know, who they're right. here to support. Um, so it was kind of at that moment where I really was like, I need to, I need to be a part of this somehow, yeah. you know? And, um, two days later we were at the Boku store watching Richard Rosendale compete. And, you know, I mean, that just was like, okay, this is just super wild. Right. I mean, just like the wizardry of cuisine, watching all the platters come out of the kitchen, watching and and watching the platters, the intensity of all the chefs, the, um, you know, you get that moment when you're there where what I call the X factor or the aha moment, Uh you know, a a, a chef puts something up and, and, you know, you're a chef who's been in the kitchen 15, 20 years and you're asking yourself, how did he do that? You know, it's just so, you know, groundbreaking in its presentation and its execution yeah. and its refinement. And, you know, they've only had five enough hours to do this with yeah. two guys in a kitchen. And so, um, you know, it just kind of was that moment where like, I want to do this, yeah. you know? And, and I think also I had a sense in my mind that I feel like 
we can do this as a country. You know, uh-huh. we have chefs who are are good enough and trained well enough to perform at the highest level of this competition. Yeah. Did that still seem? You may not like this comment, but we're sure. friends, so I'll say it. Yeah, sure. Can, but you know, when I get asked, and 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 you know, if I get interviewed as I did, even you know, when the Matt brought home the gold mm-hmm. this past year. You know, people say, oh, this is a big moment, you know, for the United States. And I felt like, I mean, I felt like it was, mm-hmm. you know, but what I always said was it was the, how did I put it? I said something like it was more the cherry on top than storming the castle. Yeah. Like, I feel like this country's had respect for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, did, it, did it seem that way to you or did it seem, am I, under, am I underselling the importance of it, the way you, just the way you personally saw it, you mm-hmm. know, like, again, you, first book you ever owned was La Technique. France right. was the thing, right? That was, France was the standard, right. right? So did it seem still to you like this horizon that, um, did it represent a new horizon in, in American achievement? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's different horizons, right? Like I think in this country, um, you know, we've established ourselves as, you know, we've had the best restaurant in the world. We've had right. three Michelin stars. Right. We've had, you know, American chefs winning those three Michelin stars. Yes. And I think as a country, people see us as a, you know, leading country culinarily. Yeah. In certain circles. Right. However, like at the Boku store, that wasn't the case in right. those circles. And also, I, I mean, my, my opinion's always been that like, you know, it's great that we win the downhill event and it's great that we win the cross country event, but you want to win every event like right. you want to be the dominant country so you would put this board. alongside those other benchmarks that you just listed absolutely yeah yeah absolutely. i like that you i know? like that i, I mean, agree that, with that that's that's kind of yeah. how i've always looked at it and you know i think when when i went in 2015 yeah. you know people kind of were like you know they shook our hands kind of nice to have you here and like oh look it's the u.s you know glad to glad you guys came back you know there nobody paid any mind to us well the novelty of having uh uh Daniel Balud and Thomas Keller mm-hmm. um, and Jerome Bocuse, the no- the novelty of that triumvirate had worn off. Yeah, yeah. The uh, it hadn't produced a medal. Mm-hmm. You were the fourth person, I think, under their auspices. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is no dis. I mean, I don't. Res- there's not many people I respect more than those guys, but I, the novelty of that had worn off. Mm-hmm. So, I do think people. I mean, I myself, and I have a lot of really close friends in the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I just didn't, and it was no disrespect. I mean, you and I didn't even really know each other. Right. Um, I just thought, I mean, it makes your point for you. It makes the point of you were, you know, as I think Rich Rosendale used to say, the way you win this is by beating them at their own game, by beating right. the Europeans at their own game. And that is something we had never done before. Um, uh, and I think I, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, the, the transition from 2015 to 2017 was just, uh, this is from silver to gold. Yeah, it was kind of just surreal. Like we had won silver. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in our minds, even the Norwegian guy was like, you know, I really thought you had won. <laughs> you know, and it was super close, nine points out of two. The year you competed. The year I competed. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was Razor milliseconds yeah. that separated us. And so, I mean, for us to like our all year long, we're like, we got to make the podium. We got to make the podium. Yeah. You know, and the podium was like this unachievable thing. So yeah. To be that close to gold at the moment was just like, yes. Oh, I can't believe this. Yeah. You know, and then. To a few months later, it was like, man, we were so close to gold. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and I still remember when you guys came back and I, I interviewed you mm-hmm. guys uh, over at Yahoo, I think it was. Yeah, exactly. And I had a moment with Keller and, uh, and I so funny. I call him Thomas. I'm not mm-hmm. a cook. I, I always feel weird when I'm with guys who have worked for him because I know you guys right. all call him chef. Right. But anyway, so I was with Thomas and, uh, and he said to me, uh, he pulled me aside at one point and I said, I'm just so happy for you guys. And he goes, watch next time gold. And I just yeah. thought, wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to your point earlier, I mean, like the, the cherry on top was now 
approachable, reachable. Right. That right? was the like, cherry on I mean, top. For, yeah. for me, the mountain we climbed in 2015 was from base camp yeah. all the way up all to, the way nine, up to nine within, feet from the right. summit. You yeah. know? And so it was really about going back to finish the job. Yeah. And people, I mean, it's so hard, you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll record an intro after we do this interview and I'll do my, I will have done my best before when people are listening to this to explain this thing, but it is a very complicated, we could, I can spend 20 minutes explaining how the, the how the judging works and the mm-hmm. history of it and how the teams are selected and how many teams come from Europe and how many come from Asia and how the U S gets one. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of inside baseball around this thing. Uh, but what I do think anybody can appreciate is to suit up for this thing, to spend a year working toward it, uh, to come in uh, to, to, to earn a medal. And then, you know, that next year that you don't get any, um, there's no seatings, you know, yeah. uh, there's, there's no, none of the deferential treatment you get in certain other sports. You don't carry anything over. Mm-hmm. You come in or the new team comes in. Sometimes people come back. You know, the heartbreaking thing to me was when I was in 09, when I was there, I interviewed a guy from Australia who had placed 12th, wanted to do better, came back as the candidate again mm-hmm. and he got 12th place again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can appreciate as much as anybody. I mean, that's the risk everybody takes, yeah. but to come back with the same guy, same score, that's tough. You yeah. Know? And then you tough. have guys like Rasmus Kofed who went uh, bronze, silver, gold. I mm-hmm. think he took one, one took competition, it, yeah, one off, competition somewhere off somewhere in there in between silver and gold, but yeah. moved up each time, which mm-hmm. is just, I mean, to, to take that leap and jump into that again is, I mean, that's something else, isn't it? As yeah, the actual... it, is, it is. You know, I mean, the year I competed, you know, the two guys I stood on the podium with, they were back for their second time. Yeah. You know, the guy who took first had taken fifth previously. Yeah. He took third yeah. from Sweden. Tommy, he uh, he had taken silver before. Yeah. So he was going back for gold. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a year, year and a half of your life that yeah. you're dedicating to this. And, you know, so it's, it's you're putting it all your eggs in one basket, you yeah. know. And uh, I think I think for us, that was one of the really transitional moments for us where, you know, when we took silver in 2015, it was the first time that we had a formula. We had a a, a training system in a sense that was successful. Yeah. So we could build on that. Uh, Martin Kastner from crucial detail in Chicago was a huge asset to us. Now we should say, this is the person who designs a lot of the tabletop stuff for mm -hmm. Alinea. Um, and well, all of Grant, I think all of Grant's restaurants. Yeah. He does all of the ice molds and stuff for aviary. Yeah. A lot of the, service pieces people are familiar with the linea yeah. bacon wires and yeah so he's a visual and genius and he, he, he really is you mm-hmm. and he and this is all described in great detail in the book uh, and there's some amazing the photography is stunning by the way uh, yeah. how many photographers are credited like two or three um the two main there's three main photographers yeah. uh actually martin's wife laura uh, okay. did a lot of the food photos yeah. in here and she's she's amazing um you know meg smith did a lot of the kind of documentary style mm-hmm. Uh, photography and then David Escalante uh, who worked with Meg was kind of alongside us as well so the okay. three of them really kind of are the champions of the yeah, photography I mean it's just stunning but you know as you said before there is this visual component mm-hmm. uh, to the Boku's door and uh, the collaboration I think between you and Martin Kastner of you know your food and then his ability to sort of I mean almost like mind meld with you it felt like um, and create the way you guys worked in tandem to create, I mean, very few people have, I didn't taste the food, uh, very mm-hmm. few people have, um, but obviously delicious food based on the scores, but then something that was he could put into, I think you talk about this, that he created, He one of the things he's really good at that really flipped people out, I think, was he has this ability to create this illusion almost of weightlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that was stunning. The visual piece had always been a little bit elusive. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think the way you guys worked in tandem was just stunning. Yeah, it was a real singular effort in the sense of how things had been, been done before. I mean, you know, look, I'm a chef, right? Yeah. And like when somebody says, hey, go put this on a platter. Yeah. It's like, okay, like what is it? Like a round platter? <laughs> right. And so when I first met Martin in December of, of actually I met him in December 2013. Yeah. Um, it was immediately apparent to me that this, this guy thinks about things differently, right? Uh -huh. Like I see things in, you know, um, face value for what they are. And he sees them kind of in, you know, future shapes and, and, and colors and, yeah. and design. And, yeah. you know, what we eventually stumbled upon was like, we're kind of both chefs in the kitchen, but we have different tools and different ingredients. That, right. You know, sure. And, Interesting. And for us to be yeah. able to kind of work developing not only the platter for the yeah. food, but to develop the food together. Right. Um, you know, I remember we're like designing the little canal molds that were kind of the corn nest that we did. And, you know, we're trying to come up with the right size and, yeah. we're, you know, we're talking about like one twenty six thousandth of an inch, you know, and things. And it's just, you know, for me, I just learned an incredible amount from him and, yeah. and equally so with him. I mean, I think it helped him get a little more organized over there. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's the creative process is something where you just kind of ride by the seat of your pants, right? Cause you want to have as much time to be creative, as much time to develop things Sure. But with this, you know, there's a point where you got to lock it in. Um, so you can so, start practicing the routine and get ready for the competition. Yeah, you know, yeah. I liken it to kind of a gymnast. You know, okay, we we perfected this jump and that spin and this tumble, and now we got to choreograph this whole thing. We got to put it all together to music, yeah. and then we yeah. got to practice that so you can you can do it. And under that pressure, you're going to yeah. find yourself in. Yeah. yeah. So I have to ask. I got to go back for a second to this moment. You're you're over there mm -hmm. in um, 2013, I guess, right. watching the competition. You decide you you know you feel that you have that moment that mm -hmm. ray of light moment and you go I want to I want to go for this right I don't know you that well Phil you seem like a very modest guy um, you um, you know you're not a showboater um, what I mean what was it about that that grabbed you in other words I I feel like a lot of people I think you need I've always felt like you had to have a real pretty huge ego mm -hmm. to want to go for this thing I, I almost feel like because it is inherently um uh you you're sort of showing off I mean you kind of are you're like I can do more with food in five hours than you can right right I mean that is sort of what you're doing what what was the what was the sort of impetus for you the personal motivation um that gave you that confidence and that gave you that desire to throw yourself into this thing. Yeah. I think for me, it was, it was two key things. Um, I think the first and, and most prominent thing was, you know, leaving that stadium. We, we took seventh that yeah. day and, you know, it's such a patriotic event. Yeah, People have their faces painted, they're beating drums, the waving British, flags. The British band's music still plays through my head yeah. randomly after yeah. five hours yeah. of hearing it. Yeah, it's like, but, a, it's like a soccer match times right. 12, and, and right? And so when you walk out of there country, and, yeah. and, and you've walked away without what you came there to achieve, like it, it, it's your country, yeah. you know? And that, that to me was the most driving thing. Like the U.S. is better than this. And if I have the opportunity to do something like that for our country, like, yeah. I mean, what more bigger motivation do you need in, in a sense? Yeah. Right. And so that was really kind of the deep seated thing. Um, and then it was really for me also about the craft, right? Yeah. I think there's always been this division between competition chefs and let's say Michelin star chefs. Right. Right. I'm not a competition chef. In fact, when I did the Boku store in 2015, that was the first thing I'd competed in since culinary school. It's amazing. Um, yeah. you know, we didn't have some of the other trials at that time. And so, um, you know, we didn't know 
if what we had done and the way we had trained would be successful or not. Right. But the point of it for me was that this is my craft, yeah. right? This is my, this is my medium for creativity, for what I pour my dedication into. And if I can use this vehicle, this competition to elevate that and explore what potential I can reach, yeah. um, like why not? Right. Like, and, and, and that journey, that road, um, to me has been, you know, so rewarding in so many ways, you know, four years later from, from that first moment in 2013, the, you know, the chefs I've interacted with, the people I've been alongside, the young cooks that you've mentored along the way and now see thriving in new environments. Um, you know, all of that stemmed out of that decision for my, to, to jump into this. And so that's, that's really even the purpose for the book is to kind of share that story and get people to understand like, all the layers of this that are there besides just that finished platter yeah. that they see, you know, and, and, and the gold story, you know, it's all those layers underneath and all the people along that path. What did you take out of, out of meddling there, getting the silver? I mean, is it something that you think, do you think about it a lot? Is it something, it sounds, I don't, you know, like, like, I, I mean, I do liken this event to a sports event. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I do feel like people, I mean, gosh, even people who have like a weekly game can know what it's like to sort of beat that person you've never beaten or beat that team yeah. in your weekend pickup basketball game that you've never won. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are tennis matches I think of from t- 15 years ago where I beat someone I had no business beating. I was, right. you know, I just had a great day and I, I was at my best, you know, and I thought about what I was going to do and I executed it. You think about something on the level of what you did. I would imagine, it, and all these things do sound cliched and corny. All sports movies, I think, ultimately are. Sure, yeah. But is it something you took with you? Did it take your kind of sense of um, potential, personal potential, to another level? Is it something that gives you a certain degree of um, fortitude about new challenges? How does it? How did it affect your life? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think looking back at what we did to prepare for that event, you know, I didn't drink alcohol for 22 months, you know, like we did CrossFit five days a week, if not more. And, you know, just every level of what we could do. Like, I didn't want to look back and say I could have done more or what if, you know? And so we did everything, took French lessons, everything from that point. And so when I look on that time, it, you know, it shows to me like what you can achieve at, at the highest level of dedication and, you know, the, the confidence to like push through whatever it is, you know, when I signed the book, it's, you know, never, never give up. You know, and yeah. we we read the Louis Zamperini story that you know that's the movie that was done in the book uh, Unbroken. Yeah, you know, and just you know a guy who's been shot down, floated across the ocean, right? Picks up by Japanese and like is in a POW camp for you know two and a half years. And this is something that you as a team we we read it together as a team and then and watched the movie. To, right. And yeah. you know, I mean, it was always our motto: well, like if if Louis can do that, we can do this. You yeah. Know? And you know, when your stuff is stuck in customs for three days and you lose your laptop and you know you find out you can't use the fish plate that's now on the cover of the book and right. <laughs> all these things, you know, that we just had to fight through yeah. so many things to get to that point and. Um, you know, pave a road that hadn't been paved before. Right. And so, you know, when I look now at like looking at opening my own restaurant or, you know, the different challenges in front of me, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, you, you always have that in the back of your mind. I remember being on, you know, I think it was some TV thing in Las Vegas and I was nervous and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, why am I nervous? Like I competed in front of 2,500 people, like, you know, and, it, and it's like kind of that, it's always in the back of your head. You can tap back into yeah. that. And you can tap back into it and just recognize that, okay, like if I'm prepared and I'm confident with what I'm doing, like I can do what I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think like for me, it pushes me 
not only in what I'm doing, but also there's a responsibility, I think, yeah. right, to kind of take what we've been able to achieve and really make something of it that, that can be an inspiration for other chefs and yep. know, especially the young generation, you know, across the country. Sure. Um, so, you know, tomorrow we're doing a demonstration at the Culinary Institute of America and really about, man, if I was 17 and listening to this story, like how exciting would I, would I be walking out of that room? And, right. you know, that's really the goal of the, of this whole story is to get that, get those layers out there, get people, um, aware of, you know, the opportunity that they have. Well, there are these stories. I mean, the guy, I remember the guy, he was from Norway, Gearski, who mm -hmm. won in 09, the first year under that we went under Thomas and Danielle and mm -hmm. Jerome, uh, he t had this story about being a little kid and seeing something, seeing the Boku's door on television right. and deciding he wanted it. And, right. uh, I mean, you had this unique moment where you kind of had that lightning bolt as an adult. Mm -hmm. Um, but usually I think people do need to sort of have that, um, ambition, that spark, mm -hmm. um, happen when they're a kid. You almost need, it almost needs to be like a dream that yeah. you couldn't let go of from childhood. I think that's how a lot of people get, uh, accomplish great things. Yeah, and I think that's one of my one of my goals, right? One of my passions is to, you know, bring this level of inspiration to to every level, from you know where we are as professional chefs yeah. to the students, and even be, beyond that. I mean, I was invited to judge the Norwegian competition back in uh, you know what was it 2016 and yeah um, and 15 actually, and you know when when he won, it was like I've been dreaming of this since I was nine years old. Yeah, you know, it's like how do you get a nine year old to think about the Boku story? Right. It's like well. You know, one of the things you have to do is you have to make it entertaining. And yeah. I think that's one of the challenges we have in front of us. I mean, you talk about suspense, you talk about the story, yeah. you talk about yeah. everything that builds up to these type of Olympic moments. You yeah. know, there's so many sub stories to build up to. Um, but, you know, even that aside, like, you know, my daughter's a swimmer. Yeah. But, you know, she reads Simone Biles' story in gymnastics and she's inspired to yep. do that in swimming, you know. Yeah. And so for me, people ask me, like, oh, is this going to impact the culinary landscape in America? It's like, well, you know, are these four dishes we've done over the last two years going to like, you know, be revolutionary? Well, that, no, like the, sure. the, the story and the inspiration that comes behind it is really, I think the opportunity we have to impact, you know, our culinary community and the yeah. chefs that, that we rub shoulders with. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, the book is Chasing Bocuse, America's Journey to the Culinary World Stage. The author is Philip Tessier, winner of the silver medal at the 2015 Bocuse Door. Uh, and a major force uh, behind the subsequent gold medal won by Matt Peters uh, in 2017. And Phil, you know, as always, I, I continue to be stunned that you pulled it off. Uh, you were the man with the plan. You had the vision. And uh, it's a great story. It's just a great story and a beautiful book. So congratulations on both. And uh, Thank thanks you. for making time for us. Yeah, thanks. Always great. And we appreciate all the support you've given oh. along the way. And uh, you know, for all those listeners out there, Andrew had a big part in the book oh, and, wow. uh, you know, the forewords written by him. So thank really you. proud to have you in there. You're too kind. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Yeah. Thank you. My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. 
George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. And we are back and about to start the second interview of this twofer episode with Chef Michael White. But first, I do just want to remind everybody, if you would like to subscribe to the show, you can do that on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you'd be kind enough to leave us a rating or a review, we would appreciate it. It really does help people find the show. And as always, I do want to just read one quick review from someone who goes by the handle Professional Waitress. And Professional Waitress says, Andrew Talks to Chefs is a podcast every person who works in or loves restaurants should listen to. A decade into working in the industry, I find listening to these conversations reigniting the passion I felt walking into my first kitchen internship. In fact, I have called up old colleagues and suggested the show as each interview reminds me of an idea or a concept or a cookbook we once shared over shift drinks of our own. I suspect you listened to our Victoria Blamey episode. I love hearing these chefs discuss their journeys to success, their role as a teacher, their voice as an artist, at least in my mind they are artists, if there is anything more I could ask for, it is a further discussion of hospitality and how our industry can grow and evolve. What does the future look like for young people who want to contribute while being told the bubble will soon burst? That is a great question. I will try to get to that early in the new year when we come back for season two. Um, in the meantime, this is our interview with Chef Michael White, who I told you all about at the top of the show. Michael is one of the foremost practitioners of the art and craft of Italian food, certainly in the United States, perhaps in the world. I would probably venture to say in the world. Um, he's had an amazing and interesting career starting in the Midwest and winding his way to Italy and eventually to New York and now to various countries around the world. And we did a fairly straightforward biographical interview that traces how this former offensive tackle from Wisconsin found his way to eight years in Italy and then to, to doing what he does today. Uh, a chef that I'm really fond of and an interview that I hope you will all enjoy. Here you go. My conversation with Chef Michael White recorded about a month ago in New York City. I hope you enjoy. Michael White. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How you been? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It's been so long since I've been to this apartment that I didn't remember where the bathroom was. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> this is where we used to do a lot of our uh, book work here back in the day when we were writing Classico and Moderno. 
First of all, I have to ask, you you guys, you have a dog. We do. How long have you had that animal? The dog just turned five years old. Oh, my gosh. Camila. She's okay. a Cavalier King Charles. She rules the house. Okay. Uh, you didn't tell our listeners, but we just had to move the dog because of uh, her snoring. Escapades. Yes, we had to restart the show because there yeah. was a canine snoring happening in the it, background. It was a, it was a steady noise, but it was going to bother me. Yeah, so. I actually for a minute I thought it was. Const- I'm not even kidding. I thought it was construction outside, like, like outside. Mm, mm. <laughs> uh, okay, so Michael, um, you know what I would love to talk about today is how a guy uh, from the American heartland becomes one of the top Italian practitioners in the country. That's a good way of putting it. Um, I'm still practicing. Still practicing. Um, but why don't you, let's let's. That start. always freaks people out when they talk about doctors and they're still practicing. You yes. know how people say, well, chefs are really practicing. And when you stop practicing, you're pretty much, you're done. Yeah. So I'm a but practitioner. Like do you really that. feel that way? Uh, you know what? Uh, you hear we, chefs say this a lot. Like, no. you know, we wear the blue apron during the day because we're all still learning. And you know what? When I cook, um, for those chefs who've been on the line in years, I'm on my 28th year going yeah. on right now. Uh, it's like riding a bike. You don't know how. You don't forget how to do certain things. Right. I mean, obviously, you get out of you know practice and you're not as quick and things like that. But uh, if if I went to work uh, right now and was out in the pasta station, Maria, I could. I could do it no problem. So right, I'd be sweating. Right, but, uh, but I, I could do it no problem. So I don't buy into that uh, the old adage that uh, you got to stay in the game all the time. Right, I mean, obviously you stay up on new things, and sure, things like that. Yeah. So, uh, well, tell me about, uh, tell us about how you uh, grew up. You, you're from Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin. I'm from Beloit, Wisconsin, and grew up in a Midwestern family. Uh, you know, Norwegian values, hardworking family, uh-huh. and. Uh, Food was always important. and What kind of food, though? Well, just, what, what kind what, of stuff did you grow up eating? Well, we weren't eating canned vegetables. Uh, we were eating, uh, you know, good vegetables. That's where, like, where the farmer's market kind of craze just started, uh-huh. I would say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we were always eating good cooked food. And we'd yeah. eat, you know, 5.30 or 6, you know. Yeah. And that, that kind of uh, cooking. And my father was passionate about cooking as well. Uh, and it was right in the infancy stage when you could <clears throat> watch on Good Morning America, you know, maybe a cooking segment with Wolf Wolfgang on, uh-huh. on a Friday or something like that. Right. So, you know, we would cook on weekends and, and bake bread and things like that in the wintertime when it was cold out in Wisconsin. Yeah. So, you know, that's really kind of how the bug started. And uh, this was far before the Food Network. And, yeah. Um, one day I decided that uh, I wanted to be a chef uh-huh. and, and get serious with it. And... Uh, I applied at Kendall uh, Culinary Institute in Evanston. Yeah. And from that point on, kind of just, you know, kept pushing and, yeah. and went to work at Spiaggia. And, and that's where I got the Italian bug. So, so Spiaggia was, well, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit more about your high school years. You were a football player. Football player. What was your position? I was an offensive left tackle. Uh-huh. And for how many years did you do that? Wow. Uh, all, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12. Then I went to two years of uh, in college and, yeah. and knew I wasn't going to uh, be a... Uh, a professional football player. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Was that something yeah. you thought you might be at some no, point? No, no. Every every kid when they're in college, you yeah. Know, but, but it's obviously for very very few. Um, and uh, at any rate, I would I uh, you know had a knee injury, and when I was recouping, I was starting to watch like uh, 
great chefs and those kind of programs. On I didn't Discovery realize this. Channel. That's, so this coincided well, the, with you kind of having a forced break in your a little break, athletic right? And, life and watching you know great chefs of Chicago, great chefs of San Francisco. That yeah. that one program was on the Discovery Channel years ago, and that's where I kind of you know got really introduced to the seeing this fine food and yeah. and you know the old chefs like Jean Bonchet and things yeah. like that on TV. Uh-huh. Um and uh and from there is where I really got the bug to want to become a professional chef. I you know I ask about the football thing cuz I feel like um a lot of people who end up in kitchens uh were were athletic kids. They especially um well, I was going to say especially team stuff, but actually there's a lot of chefs who, who play tennis. A lot of tennis players. Uh, which is kind of an expressive sport, right? So there's, the, you could see how that coincides with cooking in some ways. Sure. Um, but there's a lot of people also who come from a team sport background, which seems to me to have a lot of parallels to, uh, to ending up in this group situation that you end up in a kitchen. I think I think if I didn't or I wouldn't have played team sports uh, in you know junior high school and high school, um, I don't think I would be a chef right now. I mean, really? I, I think that it really, uh, the brigade system, you know, everybody has a job to do, yeah. um, that type of thing. Um, I really think, uh, it, it's, you know, it's important. Um, it was, it's definitely an important thing that I have inside of me, uh, and, and the cooking that I do today. And you feel like that was activated as a kid on, in the team sports situation? Most definitely. Most really? Definitely. You make that direct connection? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So you go to- Learning how to work with others, uh-huh. you know. Well, yeah, there's so many parallels when you, you think about um, you want people on your team to do the best job. Well, that's the same thing on a football team. You don't right. care whether they're yellow, green, black, red, blue, right. what ethnicity they are. And that's really the same kind of thing that we have in the kitchen. Uh-huh. And so many times when I hear things on television, things that are going on in the world, we often as cooks talk about those kinds of things like can't even believe what's going on because we don't even think. You feel completely separate from those things that are... Oh, because, you know, if you walk into any one of our kitchens, you know, and I'm not just speaking myself, for chefs in general. Yeah. I mean, we have people, obviously, from South America. We have people from from all parts of the world right now. Yeah. Uh, At Amaray, I have kids from Sri Lanka and and, uh, Korea. Yeah. We have kids from all over. Yeah. Anyways, get on a tangent, but... Uh, yeah, well, it's funny. This is, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, what does Tony Bourdain always say? The kitchen is like the ultimate meritocracy. Like, yeah. if you come into a kitchen and you can pull your weight, right. that's kind of all that matters to anybody. That's, that, and that's really what I, you know, they, they talk about, um, you know, how the wages and things like that. Listen, if you're one of the best players in the kitchen, you're going to get paid. You know, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what you are, yeah. who you are. Yeah. So tell me, what, what was the cooking uh, school experience like for you? Oh, cooking, uh, you know, those, uh, cooking school is important, um, you know, obviously structure, learning the basics, uh, yeah. learning the terminology. Uh, when you get into a professional kitchen, you, uh, you're almost, uh, you know, you're the baptism by fire, I like to say, but, you know, knowing what braising is, knowing what roasting, you know, going in without any of those kinds of things uh, yeah. in your repertoire or knowing what those are. You know, it would make it a little bit diff- more difficult, for yeah. sure. So cooking school was important to me to get the basics. And, yeah. uh, was that a two-year program? It, it was actually a, a little less than one-year program. Okay. It was a professional cooking. Uh, I was actually working at Spiaggia simultaneously. Uh-huh. And can um, you tell people Spiaggia is what? Spiaggia is now uh, 30 years uh, at uh, Oak in Michigan, and it is on the second floor in the one magnificent mile building. In Chicago? And, in Chicago, and it's uh, an Italian restaurant that opened in 84. 
1984 when, you know, it was just the beginning of uh, risotto and in the know, U.S. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and this restaurant is and, now very closely associated with Tony Montuano, yes. the chef. Uh, but at the time when you were there. When I was there, uh, I was working with Paul Bartolotta, uh, uh-huh. who uh, is an esteemed chef here in the United States and uh, very focused on Italian food. Uh, and now uh, Tony is uh, Tony Matuano, he's yeah. the chef there. And he was actually the original opening chef mm-hmm. and then went on a hiatus and, and did some some personal things. Uh, and now it's been back now for, oh, going on almost 20 years again. So. Yeah. So tell me your introduction to the world of, of uh, you know, authentic, I guess, Italian food in that restaurant. What was it about that food at that time that you responded to i mean obviously a lot of people in this country love italian food you've you've kind of made a you've made a life of it right italian food is uh is the ethnic food of choice around the world um you know whether you're in turkey and in asia is that um, right oh i mean i it, there's there's two or three different italian restaurants at at, at the zorlu center where where we have a restaurant ristorante marini in turkey and istanbul uh-huh. uh, there's two or three other italian restaurants inside there um there's an italy there uh, there's an affas- uh, you know there's an affinity to to Italian food, um, whether it be the pasta, tomatoes. It's all like items. You know, yeah. In Hong Kong, uh, for example, there's there's a I can't you could count and count and count how many Italian restaurants there are. Interesting. Um, I I fell in love with Italian food just just the the the, the it was at the end of of uh, Nouvelle Cuisine and uh-huh. I just I was at a lucky time to get into the kitchen. Um, we were cooking with with potato. Ra- I mean, I, I I saw potato and leek raviolis with basil pesto for the very first time. Yeah. Well, you can imagine how that kind of resonated with me. Yeah. You know, eating uh, porcini mushrooms, having endives. So when I got you know fixed on Italian food, there was no looking back. I mean, it was the thing that you know captivated me. Yeah. Really. When you at that time in your life, like when you, uh, I mean, you look at where you are now, right? You have all these restaurants, you've, uh, several in New York, and then others around the world. Uh, you know, when you are fresh out of cooking school and you have this job at this prominent restaurant in Chicago, um, what, what, did you have a vision kind of of where you were headed or what you would end up doing? Uh, did you even see yourself as somebody who would have multiple restaurants? What was sort of for a young kid starting off at that time, what, what was the sort of future you saw for yourself or was it just, I want to learn to cook? Sure. I don't think anybody goes out thinking they're going to have a ton of restaurants. I mean, especially at that time, it was not really the norm right. um, sure. to have so many different places. So that wasn't something like, you know, nowadays, I guess if a young chef was looking out, they want to be on TV or, yes. you know, it's amazing. You talk to young people, uh, well, I want to be on the Food Network someday. That wouldn't even come from our, yeah, you know, there was our no food network. Yeah. because we didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and that's the same thing for restaurants. I don't think anybody goes out thinking you're going to have a, um, um, almost 1,100 employees and, and uh, uh, that thing. You, you do it because you, you keep training and you keep working with the team. Yeah. And, and, and you, don't, you want to make a new place for the, you know, the head chef or the, the people that are inside the, you know, the, the Alta Maria group family of, of, of chefs, yeah. if you will. And it is so hard to open restaurants right now in New York City and elsewhere. Yeah, that, why is uh, that? Well, just, I mean, obviously, there's so many different, whether it's the rent structure, whether it's the people, 
Um, we're in a very, very uh, tenuous time in New York City when it comes to rent structures and uh-huh. the availability of, of, of able bodies and, yeah. and rents for, you know, apartments are going up and such. So yeah. it's, a, it's a, a tough time in New York City. Can, um, we, can we talk about this for one second? Sure. When people talk about, you see this in the, all of us, it used to be something that was whispered about sort of in the industry. You know, there's like a cook shortage. It's really hard to get good people. People don't stick around anymore. It's funny, I just... Uh, recently had Amanda Freitag on the show mm-hmm. and she was talking about early in her career um, when she was working at Vong, wow. Jean-Georges Von Gerichten's restaurant Vong. And the reason she ended up leaving that restaurant was that she wanted to move up, but nobody was leaving, right? That's how, few, that's how few restaurants sure. there were that you wanted to work as, a, as an uh, ambitious young cook. Right now, it's the opposite situation, right? It's... it's uh, it's it's if you're a, a cook, you're the hot commodity. Right. Um, but how does that play out? What's what's the what's the dynamic like for somebody in your position of needing these cooks? What what's it like right now? Well, we we're we're when I say we we're uh, as restaurateurs in New yeah. York City, we're all vying for the same people yeah. right now, and it is uh, is how you go about it. And I think that. Uh, we've come up with uh, you know lots of different strategies on how to capture you know the the right people into into the group and, and yeah. but uh, it is it's not always monetarily mm-hmm. how we get them in you know it's uh, how they can fit into the the system the team what the culture of the, the company is like you, yeah it's very important and uh, people are looking for different things I also think that you know the one thing that we are working on as a group is is working with young people in New York City. Um, people that already live in Manhattan. That's one of the biggest problems for young people coming to New York or chefs in general that want to practice their craft here is that, you know, rent uh, to rent an apartment in Queens or wherever you're going to be, yeah. you can't do it. And and there's no longer seven or $800 apartments. And, right. and the amount of money that we can charge for our food in restaurants, plus the rent that we're paying right now, yeah. the rent, the, the, the structures, the cannot long the, the buildings have been refinanced and so yeah. therefore the, the the owners can't pay the debt service on the buildings just with the, the rent structures that they had previously so the yeah. rents are going up and when you go up and down madison avenue i don't care what street you walk in new york city as you know and you'll see tons of of open spaces not That's just crazy. for restaurants yeah but for for everything yeah um so there's a bank on every corner. <laughs> <laughs> right, and a CVS. But that's because it only takes two, there's only two bank tellers and there's, there's ATM yeah. machines inside. So therefore, there's no labor inside. It's just the mere yeah. um, facility, as, right. if you will. So, yeah. so we're, we're going through a very, very tough time. So if you're not creative yeah. uh, in New York City, um, in order to keep and garner employees, yeah. you're going to be at a very difficult uh, way about it. And I think chefs that are in their kitchens working is also another way. And I'm at a restaurant every night, yeah. uh, lunch or dinner, being in a kitchen and working with people and yeah. teaching yeah. is the utmost right now um, because people are looking to work with, with, good, with good chefs and to be in a team where they know they can learn something. So that's still something that'll keep people engaged. Uh, I, I, um, and in the fold. I wholeheartedly believe in that. Yeah. You you get that from people like when you with, when you physic when you personally are there and showing somebody something or you have their your hand on their shoulders or yeah. you're going through with them and you're not screaming and you're going through with them again yeah people react to that yeah this goes to back that. to the team thing again team thing yeah and you know great family meal camaraderie yeah people 
people need to have a sense of place. And yeah. I, you know, when we when we talk about like the CCAP, you know, that is Career Suit Connor Education uh, that we have here in, in New York, um, there are programs like that that are going to work with young people yes. in uh, in Manhattan. Um, that, that already live in Manhattan, as I was saying before, yeah. uh, that can contribute to their household sure. as well. Yeah. And they can live in Manhattan and get excited about food. These kids are watching the Food Network as well. Yeah. They like food. I have lots of young people in the kitchen that are from Queens, Manhattan, that I'm yeah. working with, uh, that are part of the program, uh, that are having a, a really good time. I, got, I can name off kids that that uh, are now uh, working in the pasta station at Vaucluse or at Ristorante Marini uh, that are from the city uh, that a year ago, eight months ago, yeah, you know, really didn't know how to put a pan in front of the stove. That's great. So it's really cool, and that's what's really rewarding. It's not about opening restaurants, now for me. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's about making a connection with people, and yeah. I really mean that. And and saying like, I got it, chef. You want to taste this? You know, yes. that kind of thing. It's really cool. So let's pick up you you. Uh, you were at Spiaggia, and then um, let's get into the meat of this story, because to me, I, I had the experience of being with you in Italy, um, which was just something else. But take me back. So you, uh, Paul Bartolotta, your chef, arranged for you uh, to go over and work, uh, I guess what we would call a stage, a stage, be a stage uh, which, which for people who don't know, that's sort of a usually an unpaid situation that you go, uh, you go into a kitchen and you're there, basically the, the, the compensation is knowledge. You, you go there, oftentimes young cooks will go for a fixed amount of time, spend time in a kitchen, and uh, you're there to learn. An apprentice. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like an apprenticeship. So you went over, uh, tell me where you went and originally how long were you supposed to be there for? So I went in in, um, in the in the winter of '93 to Imola to San Domenico, and I had you know the idea of staying for about six months, and I'd saved money up and mm -hmm. had travelers checks. Remember when we had to have travelers yes. checks and things like that? Yeah. Um, and I uh, had that idea of staying for you know six months or so to learn, work through some of the stations, and help. And and I have to uh, admit that I just fell in love with being in Italy and the mm -hmm. culture and the people and what so I. What was the original? Tell me what it was like when you first arrived there. Wow. You didn't speak Italian. No, no Italian. And so, uh, you know, very difficult learning, you know, how to be, uh, you know, assimilate into a kitchen and, yeah. and, and living with uh, above the restaurant with a, a Japanese kid looking, uh, and he didn't speak, Ita obviously, uh, English, and I didn't speak Japanese. So, yeah. I mean, you can only imagine we're looking at our, uh, our books, our little handbooks uh, uh -huh. to, to learn how to speak uh, certain phrases. So, And when you say you lived above the restaurant, this is something you see very often in European um, uh, restaurants that take on stages that it was like a, basically like a, an apartment or like a flop house for, right. for the kids who come to work there from elsewhere. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and, you know, that's where you get to do your laundry and, and yeah. uh, shower and, and uh, it's a mini apartment and it's like a dormitory with a bunch of, uh, of other cooks and, yeah. and, uh, uh, as you say, a flop house. It's yeah. a little crazy up there. But and this is fairly typical. Over typical. The, and you'll see this in you see this in London. You see this in in France. Paris, all yeah. over. One, yeah. Once a week, there's like a huge cleaning. You know, is that right? Oh, absolutely. You know, everybody does their laundry and. Um, but again, that's how you learn how to speak the language as well. You yeah. know, being immersed, total self. You know, immersion into into this uh, culture and language and. And uh, I just fell in love with uh, the fact that when you had to get chicken bones, you went down the street to, to get uh, to, to, to cly and you would buy the kind of bones you wanted for your chicken stock and go uh -huh. back to the restaurant. And, you know, there's lots of, you know, things like that that are uh, obviously the, uh, 
the uh, the cool part about being in Europe uh, is not getting dropped off. You know, like some guy on a on a little straight truck dropping off, I actually go to the to the market to buy something. So yeah. this is everybody's dream. So yeah, I was lucky to find that uh, really early in my career, and and uh, I didn't want to let go of it and come back to the United States because I know that this was always here. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I was learning and perfecting my craft and how to make pasta. And, right. You know, as you know, there's pasta and then there's pasta. So yeah. I wanted to really learn how to make pasta. And that's obviously the fastest way to, uh, to anybody's belly. It's yeah. through a good pasta. Is that to, how you to feel this about day. it? Oh, absolutely. What is it about you and pasta? I think that that pasta is something that, that resonates with me, the you know, textures, flavors, and, and uh, being exposed to good pasta yeah. right away uh, when I was at Spianja really, you know, cast the die for yeah. me to, 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 the bar was set. And so yeah. if I was going to do pasta, uh, I had to do pasta uh, as I had for the very first time in, in, in Chicago. How long uh, after you got uh, to Imola did you feel like you belonged there or lived like how long till you had a certain amount of facility with the language how long till you felt like uh i mean I you were like, kind of comfortable walking around town and this is just kind of this is my life now. i would definitely say my first stint there you know it took it took at least 10 months to get 10 months yeah that's a long acc- time that's a long time acclimated was it I, hard oh I, it's hard to be away because at that time you know we didn't have internet like we have today so right. you know you were calling uh from a payphone. Payphone, and you had a calling card number. I can right. still remember that number, 85517. Remember that number still. Is that the calling card? Yeah. You think so? Nobody yeah. uses that call? Do I have to yeah, like right. edit that out? And there was like an AT&T number that was like 1721011. Yes. It's like you, and then you heard a chime, and then like you punched ring? in your number. Yeah, and it's right, like, right. Hello, AT&T. Yeah, uh, but you're a very social guy, Michael. What was that time like for you when you were for... I mean, I guess you were probably working so much that took care of a lot of it. No, but, but I mean... Was it... Was it you have times. Was it trying ever? Did you ever wonder if, like, uh, I don't know if I can make make it through this? Maybe I want to... Oh, there's definitely times, you know, when they're holiday time, you know, things when Thanksgiving. But at this, uh, but when you're in Italy, there's there are other kids that are there. And, yeah. And uh, so, you know, you're roasting a turkey and you're doing Thanksgiving in Italy uh, and you're sharing part of your culture with other people. Did you actually so, put on a Thanksgiving dinner when you were around? Oh, sure. We were do you the only of- American? At that time, I was the only American. But I mean, the Americans come and go, whether you're, you know, from Canada or right. Japan or whatever. Yeah. But at that time, I was the only American. So we did uh, turkey. You did like a Thanksgiving dinner Thanks- for the crew? For the whole crew. Yeah. Everybody loves uh, to, to do holidays, you know, whether, uh-huh. you know, in the restaurant, whether there was kids from Germany or, yeah. or whatnot and, right. and, and sharing part of it. And we still do that to this day. We had, uh, you know, uh, chop che, Korean noodles not too long ago uh-huh. at one of the restaurants. Right. Um, the ethnic food that we eat in the restaurants is on a daily basis is right. pretty, pretty good. So uh, how, long do you tell, how long do you end up staying over there, ultimately? I'll, I'll, like, full-on time. I mean, I got a visa, and I was there for two, uh, two years straight uh-huh. uh, at one point without coming back to America. But all told, uh, six-plus years. I mean, but now I'm going back and forth, and I'm married to an Italian. And, yeah. And uh, I'm there frequently. So, yeah. Um, so I feel very Italian, actually. Yeah. So... We only speak Italian at home. Francesca went, my daughter Francesca yeah. went to the uh, La Scuola, the Guillermo Marconi here in New York. Uh, Italian until school. fifth grade. Yeah. Exactly. So we only speak Italian at home, really. Uh-huh. We, go, we, we go back and forth, but uh, from Italian to English to, yeah. to our, our family slang. To, you know. Does that affect you um, 
you're, I mean, I guess your experience in New York must be sort of unique. I mean, you're a guy from Wisconsin. You come home to a, a house, an apartment. Your wife is Italian. You guys speak Italian here. Yeah. Does that keep you connected to Italy? Is it? Does it give you this sort of uh, continuity? Definitely. I mean, I you know we we would uh, when we talk about being when having met in working in Italy. Yeah. And and speaking in Italian, we we really don't feel comfortable uh, always speaking in, in English because our our you know our relationship with my wife and uh, was in Italy and yeah. speaking Italian. Yeah. So Francesca, um, your daughter, daughter uh, speaking Italian. Um, you know, we we feel very Italian. Obviously, the other thing that's helped us so much is the fact that we have FaceTime now and we have Skype. Yeah, and so. Uh, at the outset, when Giovanna was here, it was also a, a time when it, we didn't have those things. And yes. so, you know, you were on the phone more often. So we feel very connected to Italy just because of the communications sure. and, and, you know, Facebook and, sure. and, uh, and social media in general. Yeah. Did Giovanna speak English when you two met? Uh, no, uh, but I had already been to, uh, but you, you spoke know, enough I mean, basic, at that point, you basic, spoke basic English that you learn in school, but, right. but at that time I was obviously conversational. Got it. So that makes met. sense that Italian would be sort of the default for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and, uh, boy, it's, it's coming up on November 1st. It'll be 20 years together with you. Oh my gosh. Show. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, I have to say, having uh, we we did a cookbook together, as we've mentioned, and we went with our photographer Evan Sung mm-hmm. uh, to Italy for about twelve days in the summer of two thousand twelve. Wow. So How already twelve days. Jeez, <sighs> it went fast. Well, we were working. We were doing photo shoots. And no, but I just think of like getting twelve days now. Oh, twelve days away. Yeah, yeah 12 now, days well, now, now I can't. Even, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Twelve we days. Can barely now. find uh, three hours for. To oh, people together. are like, hey, when's a good time to talk to you this yeah. week? Like, <laughs> but no, what I was going to say, though, the experience of being with you over there, um, I mean, you don't look Italian. Nope. Um, I mean, you kind of, not to be like uh, uh, stereotypical about it, but you do sort of look like what, who you are. You look like yeah. a, a, a part Norwegian American who, who grew up in the Midwest. But you... Um, uh, your mastery of the language is such, and not just Italian, uh, like generic Italian that you would learn at like Berlitz or something, right. but you speak in dialect, right? right? So when we were in the north, uh, we were around Imola, you spoke uh, with that dialect. Or that, ca- that cadence. Or the cadence. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. But very often, I saw it happen, we would go somewhere and you would start speaking in to someone, case. and they would be looking at you uh-huh. like, what? He's speaking perfect Italian. Yeah. This guy's not Italian. Yeah, yeah. No, and that, often they would they would ask you, "Are you from Piedmont? Are right. you from you?" Know, cause they or were, are you even Italian? I remember we went sure. to a deli. I don't know if you remember. We went to a deli and uh-huh. and uh, and uh, the guy was like Italiano, and you were mm. like, "No." And then he shifted to English and said, "Your dialect is perfect." Uh. Uh, but what's it, what's it like to be this American who can sort of. I, you know, almost Fall pass out. over. Well, no, but it's almost sort of ha- can at least confuse people. Um, I can really confuse people when I go to the north, like up because uh, that's where you lived, and you really have it. Well, when I say north, north, I'm talking about. You know, people start speaking German to me when I'm in Alto Adige, though, because they feel like I'm German. Is that know? right? Oh, sure. You know, instead of speaking Italian to me right away. Yeah. But uh, well, that that. I mean, having lived there and not going to 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 learn Italian or yeah. the second language in school. Um, really helps you uh, speak the language, and and I have an ear for for languages, and and uh, l- l- like learning a new language, and and uh, now with China on yes. on the horizon, 
But um, the Italian that I learned there um, really helped me to be able to speak with people because working in the kitchen, uh, you're, there's kids from Naples, there's kids from Sicily. And so yeah. having a roommate or having spent time with them and then absorbing that kind of, um, you know, that the, the accent, if you will, or the cadence. You were learning the real language as it's used in everyday life, not exactly. language out of a textbook. So and I wasn't just... So it was a little, it, 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 was a, it was more of a hard knock situation in that it took longer. You were just kind of thrown in... But, you you know, were thrown in and it was sink or swim. I mean, I was going to, to learn how to uh, speak Italian by going to the Sala Giochi or learning how to play video games, you know, with uh, the kid, just so I could learn how to speak Italian. I was with Sala what? What did you say? Sala Giochi. That That's like the video arcade? game, the video arcade, exactly. Uh, to go learn, you know, playing pool with them so I could learn how to biardi and learn when you hit the ball and, yeah. and, and the pool cue and all the different names. There's so much that you learn by being on day-to-day -day life with people. Uh-huh. Um, and that's how you really learn So by the language. time you caught up, you, you, had, you, you spoke it in a more, I guess, authentic... Authentic way. Yeah. And having... So um, that's, why, that's why you don't give yourself away. I don't give myself away. The accent is, you know, a, kind of a hodgepodge accent as well. Got it. Wherever I spend time in Italy, after a week or so is where I'll start, you know, speaking that way too. You just sort of absorb the... Absorb that, the, the, the accent. Yeah. Interesting. So, Michael, you... Come back to the States. Uh, you uh, were for a time the chef at Fiamma. Opened Fiamma in 2002. And Fiamma was a restaurant in Soho. Soho was with uh, Steve Hansen and Be Our Guest. Uh -huh. um, we opened, we were going to open uh, in 2001, but yeah. then 9-11 happened. And uh, so we got set back until sure. the new 2002, beginning of 2002. But that's where I f uh, first hit the scene and did this take on modern Italian, which is right. kind of what, you know, I've expounded on through the, through the years now, but yeah. But what was the, what were the origin? This is, you kind of, this is exactly what I wanted to ask you. Like what were, cause that is where I think most people feel like they first got a glimpse of what you were up to, right? right. Which was sort of your take or modern Italian. Um, what, what was, what was the evolution of that style for you? Like when you start taking liberties, I guess, with Italian food. Right. It was, it was more about not regional Italian cooking, but taking different bits and pieces of regional Italian cooking and then mixing it together. So there might be garganelli pasta, but it might have shavings of botarga from Sardinia on it. I'm just giving it. And garganelli would be associated with what? Oh, a pasta, a quill-shaped pasta uh -huh. that would be from Amir Romagna, okay. from Imola specifically. Um, or doing different... Uh, renditions on it, using broccoli raba bitter green from the south of Italy uh, with um, something from Piedmont. That would mm -hmm. be. So that was my first, you know, and that was where, where I first started doing it was at Fiamma, uh -huh. and that take on that. I and was that, your, was that the main approach that you would take? Um, you know, it was really the place where I started to develop my repertoire. Right, but I mean, was the main approach that you would take kind of um, uh, splicing together influences from different regions? Yeah, well, not not necessarily. There were also things that were inherently, you know, regional, whether it be tagliatelle with ragu or right. whatnot. But um, when you have a basic knowledge, and when more than a basic knowledge, and lived in the culture yeah. as long as I have, yeah. and traveled Italy, every yeah. region, and, um, you know, taking something that really sparked your interest from Sicily, but pairing it with something that you might think would be good from Liguria, for example, yes. that's really where I started to have fun with that kind of the palate of Italian food mm -hmm. uh, because Italy offers so much, you know, the, it's a, 
surrounded by water. Right. At the same time, you know, there's the the, the, the Moorish influences. Yeah. Uh, from from in Sicily all the way to the um, Germanic influences that are in uh, the Alto Adige. So yeah. we have a textbook, our playbook to play uh, a palette to cook from that's just amazing in Italian right. cooking. And being able to mix those things, like right now it's at Marea, we're using Spetzel. Uh, on one dish. Well, that's something that, you know, right. one wouldn't think is Italian, but you can go to, to Italy and get Spetzel in the north of Italy sure. very easily. So when you start doing that, I mean, having spent, um, you know, all those years in Italy uh, cooking uh, food that, I, I'm, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming a lot of the food that you were cooking in Italy was, stayed fairly close to tradition. Yes. So when you come here after years of Italy, uh, being over there, was it a natural thing for you to start um, breaking down those sort of traditions or combining different traditions or taking or, or doing your own thing with it? How, how, um, how much of a leap was that for you to make? Well, you know, you know, Mario was in in at uh, Poe and at yeah. Bobo. Bobo had just opened, yes. and he was doing uh, uh, his take. Mario was doing his take on uh, um, Bolognese food, whether it be paparelli with ragu Bolognese, and mm-hmm. but then again, he was taking liberties at the same time with yeah. you know squab with beet farotto and things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was a time when I was uh, separating myself from what he was doing and other Italian chefs were doing. Yeah. I guess there were, a, there were not that many Italian chefs in, in New York at that time as well. And if they were, they were in there, you know, cooking their regional Italian cooking. If they were, they were Italian. They, they, and they were Italian yeah. doing Tuscan cooking. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time doing Tuscan cooking, but there was still, the city was riddled with carpaccio, with shavings of parmigiano and yeah. arugula. Right. Right. And right. the balsamic drizzlers that yeah. were abound, yeah. you know, reducing balsamic vinegar to yeah. drizzle. So yeah. it was a time when the, the piazza was uh, wide open as yeah. well. And so uh, having people come to, to uh, uh, Fiamma and having, you know, food... Uh, that was a, a twist on Italian food, or everything we made was fresh pasta, yeah. uh, which uh, was not always the case yeah. uh, in in New York. Uh, but not just fresh pasta, but different shapes of fresh pasta. Having fresh spaghetti made with durum wheat, yeah, uh, and semolina and things like that were yeah. were, were new to uh, to New York. Yeah. So and, I mean, they were doing them in San Domenico in, in the early, uh, pardon me, the early '90s or late '80s. Yeah. Um, but with the flair that we were were working with, we were yeah. doing it with using the the green market vegetables and using corn in caponata instead yeah. of using eggplant, because if there was corn in Italy, yeah, they would be using corn to do things like that. So that's where that 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 thought process started. Got it. Was back in in the early uh, 2000s. So it seems to me that today, if you look at your restaurants, you have restaurants where you've kind of continued in that um, uh, vein that was sort of established at Fiamma, right? So you have a restaurant like Marea, which is, what would we call that, coastal Italian? Coastal Italian, but also we, we, you know, the uh, Italian thought process, but we, we, we take liberties Right. Um, so a lot of your restaurants, you have, you do that. You, you, uh, there's not uh, cilantro though. There's not avocados rolling through there. You know, if it, if it exists in Italy, yeah. then we can, then we use play it. with it. Then we play with right. it. Yeah. Then you have a restaurant like, um, uh, Osteria Marini, right. which is to me for the largely it's more straight up classic of what you would find in Emilia Romagna. Like there are things there that are almost, uh, or as close as you can get with ingredients Oh, there are here. textbook things there that we yeah. do. And at the same time, we have a little bit of, you know, when it's not just a Mia Romagna, Osiri Marini, because 
people are looking for a, you know, a spaghetti or a pasta and fagioli. Well, that's just not a Mia Romagna. I mean, it can be elsewhere sure. too. So most trattorias in, in Italy as well, trattorias, osterias, yeah. they, they, they don't cook solely in their, you know, region. Some do. Um, regional cooking. Is that something that gets overly mythologized yeah. here in the U.S.? Yes. Like, oh, there's these regions and they're... Yeah. yeah. And that's, a, you know, sometimes when you go to, to certain regions in Italy, you eat the same damn thing on the same menu. So, you know, tortellini <laughs> right. and brodo, tortellini and brodo. Right. You know, it's a little, it's a little much, you know, a little right. redundant. So. Yeah, that was definitely my... I mean, I've only been to Venice once, but there, I definitely remember... Um, you know, I don't know. Bacala manticato. Well, I don't know how many times I walked into a restaurant. It was like, you know, this this fish is prepared very simply in the yeah. style of Venice, you yeah. know, grilled with olive oil and lemon. You know, like, and, and then you go to a restaurant like Alcovo, right. which was a little more adventurous, and it was like a godsend. I oh, mean, it totally was just, different. yeah, totally different thing. Totally different. Um, but what's the- Great restaurant, by the way. Which one, Alcovo? Yeah. Uh, what's the, these days, what's the, what's the- um, collaborative process like between you and, and your team? Like how, how do new, new dishes come into existence these days? Well, I obviously can't put every uh, dish on the menu anymore. I don't yeah. The amount of restaurants that we have, but the, the people that are in the positions that we have in the, in the Altamaria group, whether yeah. it be Maria, I Fiori, Vaucluse, um, they're all people that have been with me for quite some time. Yeah. So there's a method and technique. There's a method to the madness. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm at all the restaurants uh, and making sure that the balance, the, the, the customer has uh, what they need. When I say what the customer, I mean, we're obviously in this business uh, because it's not just about the chefs, that's for yeah. sure. That's something the chefs have to learn early in their career. That, what do you mean by that? Well, a chef cooking for themselves or a chef cooking for their customer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have a few dishes on your, on your, on your menu that... Um, you know, embody what you want to do or, you know, what you're, th- what you're harboring now inside, yeah. you, you know, but you have to put food on the menu because that, that people want to order, <laughs> you know, the sense that salads and, you know, mainstay items, there's nothing wrong with this having a great is, salad. Well, it's just interesting to me that you went to this topic because this is a conversation I feel like a lot of chefs have quietly uh, about themselves and about other chefs, right? There mm-hmm. are, I think one of the most cutting things a chef can say about another chef is that guy cooks for himself yeah. or she cooks for herself. Sure. Um, uh, but it's interesting that this is top of mind for you. But I've heard you say this over the years. Yeah. I mean, we. we I mean, but this is not a new philosophy for no. you. You've always understood this notion of. Um, hey, I learned a long time ago. Give from, the, basically, give the people what they want. Give them what they want. Steve Hansen taught me years ago when I first got to New York. You know that that you give the people what they want. Yeah. Um, and that you know ninety percent of the people order the same thing when they come back in the restaurant too because they feel comfortable. Or they know that they're going to get uh, that consistent item, whether it's a burger, whether it's the fusilu with bone marrow octopus, or yeah, or what it may be. But people are there. Uh, for a specific item, yeah, uh, and if they're not, you need to to make the food um, taste in such a way that they're going to want to come back and have that dish again, right? I know, but this is uh, this is this thing, right? It's um, it's it's that chefs kind of can't. This philosophy is that chefs can't afford to be. You know, it's like the performer who's... T- it's like, you can't be Billy Joel and be tired of playing Piano Man. No. Right? Like, uh, listen... If you're lucky enough to have that... It's like chefs, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have probably a half a dozen plus items... Signature dishes... That I could never... That you're known for. Yeah, whether... Whether it's lobster burrata or fusilli or the strazza pretti with crab and sea urchin and yeah. the trophy at uh, I Fiori. And yeah. Lots of dishes. 
you know, I'm lucky to have those. I mean, it's like when chefs say, oh, no photos in the kitchen. What are you, crazy? Right. <laughs> you know, if, you, uh, if you Google fusilli with bone marrow and octopus, if you just type in fusilli. For people who don't know, fusilli with bone marrow and octopus is a dish that Michael does. Uh, it started at uh, Marea. It, it, it caught a lot of people's attention. Uh, Thomas Keller, that the year you debuted, it, said it was his favorite thing he ate that year. Um, uh, and that's a dish that you... Still serve. Still serve. And, and uh, you know, we braise uh, 80 or 90 pounds of baby pulipetti a day at yeah. Morea alone um, just to suffice, you know, just to make mise en place for that dish. Yeah. So I would be crazy to take it off. I'd be crazy not to let people take pictures of it. Yes. Uh, that's what I was kind of getting back to the dish. But there are people who do get into that mindset, people who do what you do, who just like, they're like, oh, I'm sick of this dish. I'm taking oh, it away. Or, or I know chefs or people say... You know, Brussels sprouts, everybody loves Brussels sprouts. Uh, I say, they say, hey, how many do you sell? I said, wow, we sell like almost three cases of Brussels sprouts a day at Marea. And we roast them and we serve them with pancetta. Well, anyways, I, I was like, well, they're, they're 30 bucks, 35 bucks a case. Or He's like, oh, well, you know what? I'm selling too many Brussels sprouts at my, uh, my restaurant. I'm just going to take them off the menu. I mean, like, that's just absurd. Yeah. And my, I can't even grasp that kind of yeah. conversation. Yeah. But that's the artistic, you know, so there has to be a balance. I mean, there right. has to you be a need balance. To of, do the, you need to stay engaged and excited, but you, you also need to customer service. Customer service. Um, there are so many damn good cooks in the city. Yeah. We're all vying for position uh, for the same clientele. Yeah. Know? And these clientele are people in New York that go out on a daily basis to eat. And you can't whack them over the head. You can't cook too yeah, yeah, rich. Yeah. You know, we were in that bacon mode, that pork belly right. mode for so long. I mean, yeah. it's kind of fun how... In, in and the, the pendulum's gone the other way now. Gone the other way. And we're all vying for the same position. So you have to give the guest an experience and give yeah. them another reason yeah. uh, to go to your restaurant yeah. besides the food because we're all cooking good food now. Those dishes you just named, like that handful of dishes that you've kind of gotten best known for. Uh, when you come up with a dish like that... Um, do you ever, do you know, like, do you know when it goes on the menu or is it, is it just another new dish that you really like? Do you put on the menu? Like, have you ever been stunned to see something take off? Yeah, definitely stunned um, on certain dishes, but there are obviously that the dish has the bells and whistles, meaning that it has the right texture. It has, you know, whether it be crab or, you know, a buzzword or something of the yeah. moment, but for every 25 plus dishes that we do, when I yeah. say it's a collaborative group, whether it's myself with the team, um, there's only a couple that stick. Um, yeah. But over the 27 years I've been cooking, yeah. I just named seven or eight. And then so there's a whole hell of a lot of dishes that we do that are yeah. that are damn good dishes. Like there are that all are restaurants. Like, um, uh, like, if, uh, like if you did talk, like they're, they're on points as, as good as the ones that have... right. Become signature dishes. Exactly. But yeah. people, um, you know, it's it's funny when um, I'm at the restaurant and you get tickets that come in at Marea or Osteria. It doesn't matter where, actually. And they say, well, <laughs> it's kind of like a 101 of like the the greatest hits of Marea. You know, they're ordering the lobster burrata. Yes. They're having the, the grilled octopus. Yeah. And then they're having the, you know, it, these are people that have, have obviously read in guidebooks or... Yeah. Their friends have told, and these are things that we need to be proud of. Not yeah. just uh, people are coming for specific dishes. Yeah, or that's the best thing that could ever happen. Yeah, and that's why it's inherently it is so important to to stay with those dishes. I think that the, the cooks get into uh, into like a into uh, like a rut, and they start cooking these dishes, and they kind of begrudge the dishes that made a restaurant famous. 
that's why it's the utmost important to, to make those dishes to the best of your ability. Yeah. It's like, it's like chefs and young people that make salads. How many salads? Oh, three more salads, three more salads. Man, that salad better be right because, you know, that's what that, that customer is going to be left with. Uh, you know, they had a beautiful salad. Well, the salad greens are wilted or they're a little sure. brown because you tore them yeah. or you cut them with a knife. Yeah. Whatever the case may be, um, that salad must be, must be uh, on point because if it's not... Well, That's what the customer's going to know. Well, and it is interesting. You do get into this, like, as me, as someone who writes about you guys, and then you as someone who does what you do, and you're with people who do what you do a lot, and you go out to dinner with people in the industry when you have the time to go out to dinner. Um, you're not going to order the salad, you know? Right. But I, I remember years ago, one of the, at the time, I can't say the restaurant, but it was one of the more important, inventive restaurants uh, in New York at the time. And I asked the chef what the best-selling uh, app and the best-selling <laughs> main course were. And the best-selling app was the garden salad. It okay. was by far the least, by, by a mile, the least interesting dish. Sure. And the best-selling main course was the chicken. Chicken. Right? Or I was going to say that or the salmon. Because the overwhelming number of diners, you can get this, like, you can get this myopia if you're in the industry. Even people who are going to the, the hottest restaurants oftentimes are not terribly adventurous eaters. They, they, right. they, it speaks to what you said about the rest of the experience. They want to go there. They want to experience the restaurant. But at the end of the day, my, my wife falls into this category. Sure. My, my wife actually is that diner. Right. You know? we, well, I think we all do to a certain extent. I mean, yeah. you can have a great steak at a lot of places, but yes. there are certain places that I want to have a steak more than I do the other yeah, place. Yeah, correct. You know? Right, I get that. Um, so before we finish, you, you've, you've been um, uh, taking what you do uh, around the world. Where are you outside the U.S. these days? We're in Istanbul, yeah. uh, London. Yeah. Uh, we're in Washington, D.C. That's not outside the United States, no. but we're in Washington, D.C., yeah. London, uh, Hong Kong. Yeah. And now um, in the new year, we're going to be opening in Shanghai. So what's the experience been of taking not just Italian food, but your your food, your version of Italian food to these different countries. What's, different. what's, what's been the learning curve for that? What's been the most sort of surprising thing to you about doing that? Well, I'm, first, I, I'm a lucky guy. I don't, I don't take it for granted because yeah. I often think on those long flights back and forth um, that I am so fortunate to be sharing yeah. not only Italian culture, but the culture of New York, what we're right. doing at Marea, you know, kind of of the moment what we're doing in the United States. And there is a captive audience uh, elsewhere that wants to have, to be a part of it. You yeah. know, they want to have it. And to, to, to mix with other people and other cultures and showing part of uh, what you do with others is really, really fulfilling. That's um, interesting. So you think of it as taking like a little oh, bit of New York. You don't just think of it as I'm taking my food. You think of it as I'm bringing like a little absolutely bit not. of a sense of what's going on in New York right now. What's going on in New York, you yeah. bet. Uh, when you when you're when you fly to 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 China, and uh, you, you're there for the week, when you're coming back uh, from China, and you see on the sweatshirts that say Columbia, New York University, yeah. uh, Wharton School of Business, yeah. that the the people that are on that plane know what the fusilli with bone marrow and octopus is. They know what these dishes are, yeah, um, because they have their diners in New York City yeah. and young people. Uh, so we're able to bring this to Shanghai, to a city of 29 million people. Um, and, and to think that we can do that 
um, it's, it's pretty, pretty special. Yeah. And I'm excited to do it. People come up to me and say, well, we're so happy that, that, that Maria is coming to Shanghai or they're here because you're going to be sharing this with our young people and teaching them about Italian food and cooking, professional cooking. So, I mean, for me, it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's what gives me the most joy right now. Yeah. Uh, after being, we were talking earlier, I've been cooking for 27 years. Um, it's a so, long time. It's a long, it's a long time. time for a young person to be have been cooking. Yeah, right. I, well, I tell you, it's a one restaurant years like dog years. So it's about right. 100, 150 years now, right. something like that. So, how do you identify these days? I mean, when you like you're from the Midwest, you lived in Italy. You're married to an Italian. You speak Italian at home. You just reference New York. I identify as a New Yorker. I really you do. do. That's I like do. that'd be the first thing you would say. If I, I, don't, I can't question. see myself living anywhere else. Yeah, uh, this is home base. Yeah, you know, Francesca was born here. Yeah. I went through 9-11. I was in right. Battery Park City during 9-11. Yeah. So I definitely I associate myself being a New Yorker. Yeah. Is that a weird thing to hear yourself say coming from where you come from? Not not really. When you think, I mean, I left home when I was, you know, 19, 20. Yeah. And um, 46, saw the world. Yeah. Saw the world. And, and yeah. it's really true. I always tell that to people when I say, um, make sure you go and travel the world. I really, uh, you're never the same person when you come back. It's yeah. just such an eye-opening experience, even though... You know, I'm not cooking, uh, China, you know, uh, flavors of the of, of, of Asia in my yeah. cooking here. Um, just being different places and seeing how how things are put on a plate. Uh, you you it it's so inspiring to to travel and 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 the good chefs and the great chefs that that you and I both know. Um, if you look at what they do, um, travel is part of their you know, part of what they do. Well, it's funny. A lot of chefs I know, it's, it's uh, you know, if they get, I mean, obviously different people have different constraints of, you know, family or of course. budget, whatever. But most chefs I know who are in a position to do it, the minute they have four days, they're yeah. on an airplane. They're on an airplane learning and about it. It sounds corny, but it really is. They want to eat. They want to see things. Yeah. They want to get, they want to get inspired. And pardon me, it doesn't have to be to go to Europe or Asia. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just yeah. saying traveling. Yes, traveling, whether it be traveling just out new, outside of New York City. Last week, we went to Stewart's Apple Orchard with yeah. Francesca. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm talking just merely travel in general yeah. and getting out of what you out do of your on, rut. A, yeah. on your rut on a daily basis um, will uh, will help your cooking. And, yeah, it translates and, in ways that you can't even really that put you, words you can't to. Explain it just kind of put, yeah, yeah, just put some oxygen in your brain and yep. stuff happens. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Michael, thanks for taking the time. It was great to talk to you. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. And that's our show. A huge thank you to chefs Philip Tessier and Michael White for being our guests this week. As always, a huge thank you as well to David Tattashore, our engineer, for splicing these things together, and to my wife, Caitlin Friedman, for joining me for the introductions to the show. And I would love it if you followed the show on Instagram or Twitter. The handle is at Chef Podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Chef Podcast or by searching for Andrew Talks to Chefs there. And you're more than welcome to follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram. That handle is at Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew. And that's it for this week. I hope you all have a great week. I hope you're all enjoying the holiday season. And I look forward to seeing you back here next week for the season finale of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Thanks for listening.